Chapter 5 of Mrs. Skaggs' Husbands and Other Stories by Bret Hart. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Mr. Thompson's Prodigal We all knew that Mr. Thompson was looking for his son, and a pretty bad one at that. That he was coming to California for this sole object was no secret to his fellow passengers and the physical peculiarities as well as the moral weaknesses of the missing prodigal were made equally plain to us through the frank volubility of the parent you were speaking of a young man who was hung at red dog for sluice robbing said mr thompson to a steerage passenger one day be you aware of the color of his eyes black responded the passenger ah said mr thompson referring to some mental memoranda charles's eyes was blue he then walked away perhaps it was from this unsympathetic mode of inquiry perhaps it was from the western predilection to take a humorous view of any principle or sentiment persistently brought before them that mr thompson's quest was the subject of some satire among the passengers a gratuitous advertisement of the missing Charles, addressed to jailers and guardians, circulated privately among them. Everybody remembered to have met Charles under distressing circumstances. Yet it is but due to my countrymen to state that when it was known that Thompson had embarked some wealth in this visionary project, but little of this satire found its way to his ears and nothing was uttered in his hearing that might bring a pang to a father's heart or imperil a possible pecuniary advantage of the satirist indeed mr bracy tibbets jocular proposition to form a joint stock company to prospect for the missing youth received at one time quite serious entertainment perhaps to superficial criticism mr thompson's nature was not picturesque nor lovable his history, as imparted at dinner one day by himself, was practical even in its singularity. After a hard and willful youth and maturity, in which he had buried a broken-spirited wife and driven his son to sea, he suddenly experienced religion. "'I got it in New Orleans in '59, said Mr. Thompson, with the general suggestion of referring to an epidemic. "'Enter ye the narrow gate, purse me the beans.' perhaps this practical quality upheld him in his apparently hopeless search he had no clue to the whereabouts of his runaway son indeed scarcely a proof of his present existence from his indifferent recollection of the boy of twelve he now expected to identify the man of twenty-five it would seem that he was successful how he succeeded was one of the few things he did not tell there are i believe two versions of the story one that mr thompson visiting a hospital discovered his son by reason of a peculiar hymn chanted by the sufferer in a delirious dream of his boyhood this version giving as it did wide range to the finer feelings of the heart was quite popular and as told by the rev mr gushington on his return from his california tour never failed to satisfy an audience the other was less simple and as i shall adopt it here deserves more elaboration it was after mr thompson had given up searching for his son among the living and had taken up the examination of cemeteries and a careful inspection of the cold hick jackets of the dead 
At this time he was a frequent visitor of Lone Mountain, a dreary hilltop, bleak enough in its original isolation, and bleaker for the white-faced marbles by which San Francisco anchored her departed citizens, and kept them down in a shifting sand that refused to cover them, and against a fierce and persistent wind that strove to blow them utterly away. Against this wind the old man opposed a will quite as persistent, a grizzled hard face and a tall crepe-bound hat drawn tightly over his eyes, and so spent days in reading the mortuary inscriptions audibly to himself. The frequency of scriptural quotation pleased him, and he was fond of corroborating them by a pocket Bible. "'That's from Psalms,' he said one day to an adjacent gravedigger. The man made no reply. Not at all rebuffed, Mr. Thompson at once slid down into the open grave with a more practical inquiry. "'Did you ever in your profession come across Charles Thompson?' "'Thompson be damned,' said the grave digger with great directness. "'Which, if he had religion, I think he is,' responded the old man as he clambered out of the grave. It was perhaps on this occasion that Mr. Thompson stayed later than usual. As he turned his face toward the city, lights were beginning to twinkle ahead, and a fierce wind, made visible by fog, drove him forward, or, lying in wait, charged him angrily from the corners of deserted suburban streets. It was on one of these corners that something else, quite as indistinct and malevolent, leaped upon him with an oath, a presented pistol, and a demand for money. But it was met by a will of iron and a grip of steel. The assailant and assailed rolled together on the ground. But the next moment the old man was erect, one hand grasping the captured pistol, and the other clutching at arm's length the throat of a figure, surly, youthful, and savage. "'Young man,' said Thompson, setting his thin lips together, "'what might be your name?' "'Thompson.' The old man's hand slid from the throat to the arm of his prisoner without relaxing its firmness. "'Charles Thompson, come with me,' he said presently, and marched his captive to the hotel. What took place there has not transpired, but it was known the next morning that Mr. Thompson had found his son. It is proper to add to the above improbable story that there was nothing in the young man's appearance or manners to justify it. Grave, reticent, and handsome, devoted to his newly found parent, he assumed the emoluments and responsibilities of his new condition with a certain serious ease that more nearly approached that which San Francisco society lacked and rejected. Some chose to despise this quality as a tendency to psalm-singing. Others saw it in the inherited qualities of the parent, and were ready to prophesy for the son the same hard old age. But all agreed that it was not inconsistent with the habits of money-getting, for which father and son were respected. And yet the old man did not seem to be happy. Perhaps it was that the consummation of his wishes left him without a practical mission. Perhaps, as it is the more probable, he had little love for the son he had regained. The obedience he exacted was freely given. The reform he had set his heart upon was complete. 
and yet somehow it did not seem to please him. In reclaiming his son he had fulfilled all the requirements that his religious duty required of him, and yet the act seemed to lack sanctification. In this perplexity he read again the parable of the prodigal son, which he had long ago adopted for his guidance, and found that he had omitted the final feast of reconciliation. This seemed to offer the proper quality of ceremoniousness in the sacrament between himself and his son, and so, a year after the appearance of Charles, he set about giving him a party. "'Invite everybody, Charles,' he said dryly. "'Everybody who knows that I brought you out of the wine-husks of iniquity and the company of harlots.' and bid them eat drink and be merry perhaps the old man had another reason not yet clearly analyzed the fine house he had built on the sand hills sometimes seemed lonely and bare he often found himself trying to reconstruct from the grave features of charles the little boy whom he but dimly remembered in the past and of whom lately he had been thinking a great deal he believed this to be a sign of impending old age and childishness. But coming one day in his formal drawing-room, upon a child of one of the servants who had strayed therein, he would have taken him in his arms, but the child fled from before his grizzled face, so that it seemed eminently proper to invite a number of people to his house, and from the array of San Francisco maidenhood to select a daughter-in-law and then there would be a child, a boy, whom he could rear up from the beginning, and love as he did not love Charles. We were all at the party. The Smiths, Joneses, Browns, and Robinsons also came, in that fine flow of animal spirits unchecked by any respect for the entertainer, which most of us are apt to find so fascinating. The proceedings would have been somewhat riotous but for the social position of the actors. In fact, Mr. Bracy Tibbets, having naturally a fine appreciation of a humorous situation, but further impelled by the bright eyes of the Jones girls, conducted himself so remarkably as to attract the serious regard of Mr. Charles Thompson, who approached him, saying quietly, "'You look ill, Mr. Tibbets. Let me conduct you to your carriage.' resist you hound and i'll throw you through that window this way please the room is close and distressing it is hardly necessary to say that but a part of this speech was audible to the company and that the rest was not divulged by mr tibbets who afterward regretted the sudden illness which kept him from witnessing a certain amusing incident which the fastest miss jones characterized as the richest part of the blowout and which I hastened to record. It was at supper. It was evident that Mr. Thompson had overlooked much lawlessness in the conduct of the younger people in his abstract contemplation of some impending event. When the cloth was removed, he rose to his feet and grimly tapped upon the table. A titter that broke out among the Jones girls became epidemic on one side of the board. Charles Thompson, from the foot of the table, looked up in tender perplexity. He's going to sing a doxology. He's going to pray. Silence for a speech, ran around the room. 
"'It's one year today, Christian brothers and sisters,' said Mr. Thompson with grim deliberation. "'One year today since my son came home from eating of wine husks and spending of his substance on harlot.' The tittering suddenly ceased. "'Look at him now. Charles Thompson, stand up!' Charles Thompson stood up. "'One year ago today, and look at him now.' He was certainly a handsome prodigal, standing there in his cheerful evening dress, a repentant prodigal, with sad, obedient eyes turned upon the harsh and unsympathetic glance of his father. The youngest Miss Smith, from the pure depths of her foolish little heart, moved unconsciously toward him. "'It's fifteen years ago since he left my house,' said Mr. Thompson. "'A rovier and a prodigal.' I was myself a man of sin, O oh, Christian friends, a man of wrath and bitterness. Amen, from the eldest Miss Smith. But praise be God, I fled the wrath to come. It's five years ago since I got the peace that passeth understanding. Have you got it, friends? A general subchorus of no, no, from the girls, and pass the word for it, from Midshipman Cox of the U.S. Sloop, Weathersfield. Knock, and it shall be open to you. And when I found the error of my ways, and the precociousness of grace, continued Mr. Thompson, I came to give it to my son. By sea and land I sought him far, and fainted not. I did not wait for him to come to me, which the same I might have done, and justified myself by the book of books. But I saw him out among his husks, and— the rest of the sentence was lost in the rustling withdrawal of the ladies. Works, Christian friends, is my motto. By their works shall ye know them, and there is mine. The particular and accepted work to which Mr. Thompson was alluding had turned quite pale, and was looking fixedly toward an open door leading to the veranda, lately filled by gaping servants, and now the scene of some vague tumult. As the noise continued, a man, shabbily dressed and evidently in liquor, broke through the opposing guardians and staggered into the room. The transition from the fog and darkness without to the glare and heat within evidently dazzled and stupefied him. He removed his battered hat and passed it once or twice before his eyes as he steadied himself, but unsuccessfully, by the back of a chair. Suddenly his wandering glance fell upon the pale face of Charles Thompson, and with a gleam of childlike recognition and a weak falsetto laugh, he darted forward, caught at the table, upset the glasses, and literally fell upon the prodigal's breast. "'Charlie! You damned old scoundrel! How are you?' "'Hush! Sit down! Hush!' said Charles Thompson hurriedly endeavoring to extricate himself from the embrace of his unexpected guest. "'Look at him,' continued the stranger, unheeding the admonition, but suddenly holding the unfortunate Charles at arm's length in loving and undisguised admiration of his festive appearance. <laughs> "'Look at him! Ain't he nasty? Charlie, I'm proud of you!' "'Leave the house!' said Mr. Thompson, rising, with a dangerous look in his cold gray eye. "'Charles, how dare you!' "'Simmer down, old man,' 
Shall we? <laughs> Who's the old bloat? <laughs> Hush, man. Here, take this. With nervous hands, Charles Thompson filled a glass with liquor. Drink it and go. Until tomorrow. Any time, but leave us. Go now. But even then, ere the miserable wretch could drink, the old man, pale with passion, was upon him, half carrying him in his powerful arms, half dragging him through the circling crowd of frightened guests. He had reached the door, swung open by the waiting servants, when Charles Thompson started from a seeming stupor, crying, Stop! The old man stopped. Through the open door the fog and wind drove chilly. What does this mean? he asked turning a baleful face on Charles. Nothing, but stop, for God's sake. Wait till tomorrow, but not tonight. Do not, I implore you, do this thing. There was something in the tone of the young man's voice, something perhaps in the contact of the struggling wretch he held in his powerful arms. But a dim, indefinite fear took possession of the old man's heart. Oh, he whispered hoarsely, is this man? Charles did not answer. "'Stand back there, all of you!' thundered Mr. Thompson to the crowding guests around him. "'Charles, come here, I command you. I, I beg you. Tell me, who is this man?' Only two persons heard the answer that came faintly from the lips of Charles Thompson. "'Your son.' When day broke over the bleak sandhills, the guests had departed from Mr. Thompson's banquet halls. The lights still burned dimly and coldly in the deserted rooms, deserted by all but three figures that huddled together in the chill drawing-room as if for warmth. One lay in drunken slumber on a couch. At his feet sat he who had been known as Charles Thompson, and beside them, haggard and shrunken to half his size, bowed the figure of Mr. Thompson, his gray eye fixed, his elbows upon his knees, and his hands clasped over his ears, as if to shut out the sad, entreating voice that seemed to fill the room. God knows I did not set about to willfully deceive. The name I gave that night was the first that came into my thought, the name of one whom I thought dead, the dissolute companion of my shame. And when you question further, I use the knowledge that I gained from him to touch your heart to set me free. Only I swear for that. But when you told me who you were, and I first saw the opening of another life before me, then, then, oh, sir, if I was hungry, homeless, and reckless, when I would have robbed you of your gold, I was heartsick, helpless, and desperate, when I would have robbed you of your love. The old man stirred not. From his luxurious couch the newly found prodigal snored peacefully. I had no father I could claim. I never knew a home but this. I was tempted. I have been happy, very happy. He rose and stood before the old man. Do not fear that I shall come between your son and his inheritance. Today I leave this place, never to return. The world is large, sir, and, thanks to your kindness, I now see the way by which an honest livelihood is gained. Good-bye. You will not take my hand? Well, well, good-bye. He turned to go, but when he had reached the door he suddenly came back, and raising with both hands the grizzled head, 
He kissed it once and twice. Charles? There was no reply. Charles! The old man rose with a frightened air and tottered feebly to the door. It was open. There came to him the awakened tumult of a great city in which the prodigal's footsteps were lost forever. End of chapter 5